Hi and welcome to episode 54 of the Canny Conversations podcast series, powered by the Pathway Group. My name's Mark Wakeley, one of the team who bring you these podcasts that we hope inform and inspire you, giving you an insight into the world of the Pathway Group. If you're new to the podcast, let me tell you there are already 53 episodes out there and you can listen to all the past episodes by searching for Canny Conversations on your preferred podcast platform or go to 1386audio.com forward slash have a listen. The main person behind the Pathway Group is Safraz Ali. Saf set himself up as a social entrepreneur over 22 years ago. Being raised in Birmingham's Alum Rock, his early life and experience gave him an insight into the life and needs of an inner city community, which is at the core of his passion for improving the lives of people through education, training and apprenticeships. In this episode, Saf is in conversation with journalist Adrian Kibler. They look at culture in all its forms and its effects on the way business is done, both for good and bad. They also look at how ethnic culture can affect career paths and busting some of the common myths regarding ethnic minorities and higher education. So let's hear from Saf. Hello and welcome to the latest in our series of one-to-one conversations with Safraz Ali of the Pathway Group. And on this occasion, we're going to talk about something which we hear such a lot of, particularly in the context of business. We're going to talk about culture. We're going to talk about culture in terms of the way that it impacts upon business. We're going to talk about national culture. We're going to talk about ethnic culture. But first of all, I think, Saf, what we need to do is to start by defining what we mean by culture. When somebody talks about the culture of a business or the culture of a community or an ethnic culture, what do you understand it to mean? Um, It's a a very large topic, uh, uh, an all-encompassing topic. In terms of culture, I feel it is a bit of a buzzword at this moment in time. A lot of people are talking about culture uh, in terms of business. And for me and for for a while, it's been in terms of our organization, how people do things when nobody's watching. It's about definitely the values of the organization, the beliefs, and effectively how we do things. And every business is different. Often it's not written, it's it's just how we do things here, as, as people say. But you know, you, you find that there's an element of culture that's cultivated. So yeah, Netflix culture is something that I've written about. And they're they're making it very simple. It's about trust, it's about enabling people. And what they've said is, you know, you can have policies and procedures, say as for for expenses, you can have three pages of policies on expenses, what you can claim, what you can't claim. Netflix on the other side have said actually just do whatever is in the best best interest of Netflix. You know, we trust you to do that. So every organization will look at, you know, their values, their beliefs and cultivate a way of doing things. So it's almost a kind of DNA, isn't it? It's something that we kind of inherit and that evolves over time. And it, it, it's the core of any business or any individual. It's Do you agree? very difficult to measure in some cases. I mean, even though there's a consultants out there which talk about measuring culture and, and looking at it and going in between, but it is something that happens over a period of time. It is, in my view, again, from a leadership perspective, it comes from the top and, and, uh, and you know, you start from people, from recruiting people in terms of how their job descriptions are written, how they're sort of performance managed, you know, how they 
do things effectively target-wise. And there's a range of things. It's not, in my view, about you know playing table tennis on a, on a weekend or it's not about having a set of furniture or, you know, as I said, a ping-pong table or table tennis. It's, it's much more than that. A lot of people, I don't know if you'd agree with this, you, you tell me, don't fail to make the distinction between culture and behaviour. Let me give you an example of that. Um, if you put up a, uh, a speed camera, the likelihood is that when people see that speed camera, they'll change the behaviour and they'll drive slower. But that doesn't fundamentally change the culture in terms of whether they're reckless or fast drivers. I mean, is that a fair an analogy? You, you can change behaviour quite readily, but culture is incredibly difficult to change, do you think? I mean, the, there's a saying about we are a combination of the people that we hang around with or we spend time with. So I think that's a big factor in terms of you know, the community you're working with or, or so forth. And it's also about norms and set norms. So, you know, these sort of things are partly to do with, you know, how people perceive things and, and see things it's, it's like you know reticular activation system you know you start noticing these things and you start behaving in a particular way that's not necessarily everything what is a what is a culture you know it might change some people's views and bring them to the community norms or the business norms yeah, so it's a huge topic and there's a, there's a we're going to explore in a little while um ethnic culture but first of all i'd like to know whether you believe that there is such a thing as a a national culture let me give you an example i mean a lot of people talk about um the american way of doing business yeah. you know the sort of popular perception is that the american way of doing business is very go ahead very entrepreneurial and you have a go at doing something and if it goes wrong you shrug your shoulders and you try again and then if that doesn't work you shrug your shoulders and try again brush yourself down and have a go at something else until you find something that works a do you agree that there is an american way of doing things and b what's your feeling of that way of doing business very similar to language it evolves, it changes, and there's a number of things that make that change happen. And what you'll find is that it's it's never at a particular point. So there's a, there's a, there's a number of things that can that can change it in terms of. British culture, uh, there's no doubt that the, the people within immigration does affect it, how we view things does affect it in terms of the fact that we're seeing international programs, we're seeing programs from not just America, which has been there for, for, for years, but also from, from Europe and how we how we get our news, how we get our, you know, our information, social media, all of these things affect our culture, affect our language. And I think the two for me, just the way language evolves, culture particularly culture uh, within the country does does change in terms of american culture I, you know i see that as an american dream in terms of entrepreneurialism and going and uh, doing something with your life and actually particularly it's a success story but that success story is across the country with across the world effectively in terms of failure and failing slightly romanticized there's a lot of lot of talk about people failing as a good thing and, and i've seen videos on on failure People talk about failure, fail fast, fail forward, fail often. There's two things with failure. If, it, if it's absolute, if it's uh, a failure where the business has just died and there's, a, there's an implication for it, then that's absolute failure in one aspect. If it's failure, which is, you know, where you can actually brush yourself down and you're testing, you know, if I was a scientist, I would be talking about experiments. You know, I would be saying that's an experiment. And if I was maybe another trade, I would be maybe talking about pilots. And if it's in that context, in terms of a pilot experiment or, you know, a survey 
or just testing things out, then that's not failure. That's actually getting you to a position where you're actually getting better, you're learning from it, and you're improving it, and then it's constant improvement, it's innovation, it's improvement. But then there's another part, which is, again, failure in absolute terms, where you know something has failed, maybe a company, an organization has failed for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think what you're saying, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, of course, is that Failure is part and parcel of life and we all have to learn to fail because it's the way that we learn most of the time. But reckless failure, you know, the the attitude that, okay, if I fail, I'll start something else tomorrow, is not victimless. Um, If a business fails, then there are implications for the people who work for that business. There are implications for customers. There are implications for suppliers. You know, people don't get paid, and that has ramifications like throwing a pebble into a pond. They can go quite deep, and they can go quite a long way. So I think you're saying, and, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, that it's okay to fail, and that will happen from time to time, but we shouldn't take a cavalier attitude to failure because we should understand that that impacts upon a lot of lives in a a very serious and often important way. Is that fair? Okay. Um, From a personal perspective, I mean, failure, again, um, I've often heard people talk about failure or fail as first attempt in learning. So it's their first attempt in learning, and it's a continuous process process. Then you can take it away from that and talk about an organization failing, uh, you know, even economies and countries failing and, and whether that should be allowed and whether that should be something that we should harness and protect. Uh, and I think you can go the other way in terms of protectionism and other way in terms of subsidies. And, and unfortunately for me, I, I think the country has gone through that process where there's been too much protectionism. Uh, there's been subsidies. There's been an element of where organizations really, their purpose has changed. The world has changed. And we've been trying to safeguard certain things on the basis that we can't deal with the consequences. Sometimes it's it's necessary as part of evolving and changing. You know, you're, you're from the media uh, profession, print media has completely changed, and then you can't keep it to what it is. And it's got to evolve and it's got to change. So it's, it's, it's in the context of the world, it's in the context of, you know, things do change. And, and, in, and for that change to happen, unfortunately, some organizations do need to fail. There is a consequence to it, and I'm not saying that consequence is easily digestible. There is always people behind it, but it's also life itself. But but would you agree that sometimes an organisation's fail, a small business, a medium-sized business, a manufacturing business fails and life moves on but you know let's give us let's talk about the best example in the last decade of businesses that failed in a horrendous way and yet they've been subsidized and they've been propped up by government by you by me by other ordinary people and that's in the banking sector now the banking sector failed many people would say that capitalism failed in in 2008 and yet those businesses were subsidized they were kept going many would say that there was no alternative but to do that but don't you feel that attitudes to subsidisation are a little bit unfair sometimes in that, you know, should the banks have been allowed to fail, what would have been the consequences of that? And unless they had been allowed to fail, because they'd not been allowed to fail, they've not really significantly changed, have they? There have been some minor changes here and there. They've been a bit more careful with the capital, etc. But essentially, the banking sector has a reckless culture because it knows that it's too big to fail. Would you agree with that? 
I would say that's not the case at this moment in time. I'm, as you know, from that particular sector, and that sector had a, a fantastic reputation in terms of becoming a banker or working in financial services. You know, where what our understanding has been is that it's been very much sales-driven uh, in terms of customer-facing. So you've had financial advisors, you know, a culture of sales and sales-driven, and you know, you've had pensions mis-selling, you've had mortgage mis-selling, you've had various types of activities that have unfortunately have gone have, have of course damage to their reputation but also financial damage as well but then on the other side you've had uh, financial derivatives and various other things for uh, tools that they've used to grow and where the economy was able to grow as, as a result of that leverage the the failure really has come from um, a risk perspective in terms of managing that risk and understanding what that is and what you find what you find now is that uh, the sectors who regulate understanding much better. So what you find is that compliance is probably the top of the agenda for most banks now, for most financial institutions. And there's a lot of people putting brakes on certain things in terms of what they can do, what they can't do. I don't think, personally speaking, that that sector has recovered from, from that reputation and it will take years and years. So anybody who's a banker now says it with an element of regret to a certain, certain level. But at the same time, you've got to think it's that sector which has uh, allowed businesses to to grow. It's a sector which has encouraged growth. I mean, there's a lot of banks now that are working with SME businesses that are there in terms of encouraging growth within that sector. There's always a, another side to it. We won't let the banking financial sector dominate this discussion. But I think I do need to pick up on a couple of those points that you've made. The damage that's been caused has been enormous. You know, most people are poorer than they were 10 years ago. If I wanted to borrow £10,000 from the bank, I would be charged an interest rate, even with interest rates low as they are now, probably something between 2 and 4%. If I've got savings in my bank of £10,000, I will be paid 0.1% interest. It's grossly unfair, isn't it? And it's grossly unfair because it is a culture in which a group of greedy people have basically been educated to understand that they cannot fail. Uh, you, you mentioned that before as well about them being too big to fail. I don't think that's the actual case in terms of, you know, I think there's less, lessons that have been learned in terms of the margin between savings rate and, and uh, uh, bank borrowing rate. Uh, those margins have increased. Definitely they've increased where the margins were a lot lower uh, before. As you probably know, most of the borrowings aren't actually from people's savings and the two don't align. Uh, necessarily. So it, it's really about borrowings from the marketplace. It's not Savings is a very small, a small amount of what actually is, is borrowed out. And, and if it was just based on that, there wouldn't be any lending. Uh, and most of, the, most of the money that's lent out is actually lent out from a different mechanism. And, you know, we're going into very, very much detail in terms of the yeah, banking. We'll, we'll finish on that yeah. topic, but, but simply to just say that if everybody turned up at the bank tomorrow and said, I want my money back, please, yeah, there wouldn't the be, bank would be able to pay about 3% of they what they, they have. We've it, talked yeah. about, to some degree, national uh, culture. We've talked about culture in a particular sector, and we've chosen to focus, or I've chosen to focus, on the financial sector, ethnic culture. You um, come from the Asian subcontinent, from that tradition. Tell me a little bit about the culture of business as seen from a British Asian perspective. I take a probably slightly different view to most people. I, I, my, my view is that British Asians are not entrepreneurial. 
They are very much focused on professions. Uh, to this day, I've not heard a parent say to their son, I want you to go into business. It's very much uh, professional focused. Uh, it's very much academic driven. And it's pushing people down the route of a good job. You know, whatever that good job is, you know, professionalism or whatever the case is. And that's been since I was at, at college and university, and I think that's still the case now. So that's the first preference for most people. Even if, if I was a business owner in a successful business, um, very rarely have I seen a business owner encourage their child uh, to actually go into that business. And they, what, they'll, they'll, what they'll say is, uh, I'd rather you not come into this business because it's not an environment uh, that gives you respect or it's not an environment where it encourages growth for, for that individual. And I'd rather you go out and, and stand on your own two feet and get a professional job, whether that helps in terms of standing within uh, the community per se, or whether that's something in terms of, you know, a wish or a goal. Uh, so from my perspective, I still dis disagree with people saying that Asians are very entrepreneurial. You know, I was born in Birmingham when my father came into, in, into, uh, in, into the UK back in the 1950s. And for him, uh, because he's, he, you know, he's grasp of English was very low, it was about education and about learning the language, it's about developing himself and, and then he's been able to uh, progress in his career because because he's had to work very, very hard and had to work the long hours to actually progress. I mean, why do you think, is it something to do with another perception which you might say is a misconception um, that people... Asians and particularly people from an Indian heritage tend to be very, very status-driven. You know, it's desperately important that my son daughter goes to university and gets a degree and I don't want them to do an apprenticeship because it doesn't hold the same level of status. I don't want them to go into business because it doesn't hold the same level of status as being a, a teacher or a doctor or, or whatever. Uh, I mean, is, is that fair? There's elements of that. We talked about environment and the environment detects really what that, some, in some cases, the, the individuals as well. So if you've got an environment which is about professional jobs, about getting degrees and getting, you know, further qualifications and pushing you down that particular route, then that's what those individuals know. And I think the key is really understanding the pulse of that environment, but without actually letting that be your pulse and I think that's the difference. And, you know, we sometimes do follow certain people or follow that community that we're in, that environment that we're in, without really thinking too much about it, without really understanding sort of a different different perspective to it. Uh, obviously, you know, this is one of the reasons why, why we, you know, why we launched the Asian Apprenticeship Awards back, uh, back in 2016. It was to educate, really, in one respect, parents and also... Uh, uh, young people in terms of the benefits of apprentices. In addition to uh, business owners, you know, a lot of business owners saw apprentices as cheap labour. So there was an element of a branding exercise, a, a sort of, you know, knowledge release. You know, it's one of those areas that we we, we try to sort of uh, enhance the understanding of what apprentices apprentices are and the opportunities with regard to the the apprenticeship route. Let's take you back a few years. I'm sure it's not very many years at all, but um, to Safraz Ali, the young man. You've left school, you've decided to go to university, and then you went to university in Birmingham. Yeah. And I think I'm right in saying that you studied 
financial services. Banking and financial services, yeah. And, and then you became not a banker, but you worked in financial services. And I assume, you tell me, but I assume that your parents were quite pleased about that. I mean, what was their attitude when you decided that actually you, you wanted to go into business? Just on that particular topic, my first choice in terms of my degree was a Bachelor in Science in Entrepreneurship. Uh, so I, I, uh, I enrolled uh, with uh, what was the University of Central England. So, you know, we had polytechnics before, which moving into universities, and the University of Central England is now known as Birmingham City University. And at the time, uh, we had new degrees, uh, a lot of new sort of degrees coming into uh, uh, into foray. And uh, there was a Bachelor in Science, Science in Entrepreneurship that I enrolled onto. And I had to uh, unfortunately leave that within the first sort of two weeks to move to go on to banking. So banking wasn't my first choice. Um, but what I wasn't able to do was persuade my father that this was a good thing. Entrepreneurship wasn't a common word at the time, 1992. It wasn't a common word. I mean, there was no Dragon's Den. There was no, no, no apprentice. There was no real discussion of entrepreneurship. The best way I described telling uh, my father about this degree was it's about business. It's about a small business. And I wasn't able to persuade or convey what that is. And he says, you're wasting your time with this. And if it's business that you want to do, why don't you just come and join me in my uh, small shoe shop, which was on Comptry Road. And because of that particular pressure, and also at the same time, the actual university wasn't able to sell this to students as well. So nobody really wanted to do a Bachelor of Science in Entrepreneurship. So I, I then had the choice of either doing just business studies or this banking and financial services. And I thought, banking, yes, I think, you know, I think there's, uh, there's opportunities there. Um, and I thought there was a, it was a respectful profession. And I thought, yeah, this is something I, do, I did. And it wasn't, as I said, uh, something that I thought of doing before I had to leave my Bachelor of Science in Entrepreneurship. So I did my four years in banking and financial services uh, and then uh, followed the footsteps of actually you know, compliance and working in that particular sector and then decided that it is a uh, business that I want to get into and it is uh, something that I want to set up on my own. So a little bit of background in terms of the, the degree. And the- Before we finally move off this topic, had, had the, in this great game of chance that is life, had the chromosomes been different and had you been female, what would have been the expectation? I mean, I was the first person, first uh, first child that went into university, and that's not just in terms of my uh, my, my family, but also the the immediate relatives that we had. So there was a lot of trust in my father as well in terms of actually, you know, in terms of it, it wasn't a, an obvious thing at that time, and uh, and it was an element of uh, trust. It's an element of you know, uh, is there going to be a yield? Is there going to be a return from this? My sister uh, did go down that particular route. She's uh, a lot younger than I did, uh, but at that time she was given the same options as well. So it depends really on the family. Uh, my father was a big believer in education and uh, there's a phrase uh, which I acknowledge in my book and he used this phrase, you know, I want you to travel as far as China if it's to do with education and that was a culture of uh, education. In terms of him, him, his own perspective, he, as far as I remember, he was uh, always reading 
always uh, he always had a newspaper and he was actually getting private sort of classes for himself to better um, his command of English. So your father would have been happy for your sister to follow the same kind of route that you do had she wanted to do that but that that's not typical is it of people from your background? That's um, very generalised. Very generalised. I mean, in terms of you know, in terms of the people that I'm uh, directly associated with, I'm finding that there's more females, particularly from the Asian community, going into uh, university. They're they're doing better in terms of uh, school qualifications. They're doing better in terms of colleges, and they also seem to be more focused in terms of university and more focused in terms of career. So, in terms of if I look at if I look at my nephews and my sort of immediate sort of gen- generation of uh, nephews and nieces and I'm talking probably about 12-15 people that are coming to that particular category uh, the ladies are doing extremely well they're all sort of really focused you ask them in terms of what they they want to do they know exactly what they want to do what they want to achieve really goal focused in my again direct experience the young men uh, seem to be less focused uh, in terms of their career and, and what they want to do and it seems to be more in terms of you know we'll see how it goes and uh, they're living each year as it is where the ladies are sort of you know, maybe three year plan five year plan and really want to achieve something in their, in their okay. lives. I think many people would find that very very encouraging and, 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 and I just want to finish because unfortunately time is short but white males particularly particularly from working class, but perhaps not just from the working class, feel a sense of entitlement. They won't do jobs that people from other ethnic traditions will do. There's a sense of, you know, I should have this purely because of what I am and where I come from. Uh, Not particularly entrepreneurial, not particularly hardworking. That's an incredible generalisation, I know. But any truth in it? In your experience? I think it's a class within the population that is at the moment quite disadvantaged. It's an area where a lot of focus has gone into other areas uh, and other communities. And this has been a community that's been left left uh, to the side. And so it's a community that's now, in terms of various reports, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, Roundtree Report, and various others where it's slightly underprivileged, slightly disadvantaged, and it's harder for, for that generation to get onto that step ladder, step ladder. And what you're finding is that some political uh, uh, parties, uh, some parts of the community are trying to exploit that. And uh, it's uh, it's a difficult conversation in terms of, you know, the, the roots of it and how it started. But it's, you know, I don't see it as individuals that are in a great position. Um, and what you're finding is that they're underachieving in terms of qualifications. They're underachieving in terms of uh, university places. So, you know, we did an exercise in terms of when we were looking at the uh, Asian Apprenticeship Awards, and we looked at a comparison in terms of how many Asians going into university as opposed to the white and indigenous population. And we were, the Asian community was overrepresented. The black uh, community was overrepresented as well, uh, even though the misconception might be the fact that there's less blacks going into university, but they were overrepresented in terms of university places. And uh, unfortunately, the white, particularly from certain deprived backgrounds of deprived areas there just wasn't that progression in terms of academic or you know in terms of professional 
uh, the, the impression that I get, and, 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 and again, if I'm wrong, tell me, but that you're a man who believes in meritocracy. You're someone who believes that where people get in life should be based upon, um, as far as practically possible, equality of opportunity, uh, based upon the character of the individuals, the willingness of the individuals to work hard. Is that accurate? Uh, yes, of course, I believe in equality, but it doesn't mean treating everybody the same. Uh, I think you need to be living in an in an in a output uh, related system. Uh, it's about outcomes and, and 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 deliverables in terms of actually growth is 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 the only way to for for an individual to grow uh, and for an economy to grow. But uh, saying that. I also believe there needs to be a floor in terms of protecting certain people. I don't believe there should be a ceiling in any shape or form. So where people talk about pay and curtailing pay and why is this person paid this much and the obscene sort of money that uh, you know, an individual is paid, I think that's portraying it in a negative light. And it should be about encouraging people, it should be about encouraging people to, to grow and creating wealth rather than putting uh, sort of a ceiling or a glass sort of ceiling on on the economy or individuals, um, and I think we should, you know, you talked about the the American culture. We should look at the medical culture in a positive way. The fact that that's actually encouraged and they look up to that rather than looking down at it or seeing it as obscene or wrong. It's getting that balance right, and I think it's you know the balance is is everything and how you how you get that balance. My personal view in terms of business, um, you know, people portray business in a negative light. Um, you know, they talk about fat cats. You know, they talk about you know the people sort of creaming off money and and particularly in terms of businesses being ruthless. And, uh, and and my view is that you know businesses for them to survive can't be ruthless. You know, they've got to be, have a purpose. Uh, you know, we look at it you know in a way where entrepreneurship is positive. But business is negative, and, and I think you know, we need to get that balance right. And, and hopefully, hopefully, the, the, if the uh, the media and and what you see more more TV programs, you might get a, a little bit more balance. If you'd like to know more about Saf's success, the lessons he's learned, and how they might help you, then take a listen to the previous podcast episodes. From these, you'll hear how he set up various business network groups for underrepresented business communities, or his involvement in community projects, or his instigation and involvement in a plethora of awards. Just search for Canny Conversations on your podcast app, or go to 1386audio.com forward slash have a listen and click on the Canny Conversations picture. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please like, review, subscribe, or follow and please tell your friends and colleagues about us. If you'd like to know more, then go to cannyconversationspodcast.co.uk or go to SAF's website, safras.co.uk. Safras has also written a series of easy-to-follow business books, Canny Bites. These are available from cannybites.co.uk forward slash buy the book. We will be back next week with another Canny Conversations podcast, so until then, have a good week. This is a 1386 audio production.